In this episode, I'm joined by Bontler Sunny. So Bontler has two careers, one as a leader of digital transformation, where she's currently the director of innovation and development at Virgin Media O2, and one as a creative, where Bontler writes children's books. In this episode, I asked Bontler about her career, how we can inspire more women in STEM careers, and what it's like to be an author, and how we can find our own opportunities. So, Bontler, welcome to Speak Female. Thank you. No, so welcome. So I wanted to ask you and kind of start the podcast with asking you around your two sides of your career. Tell me more about that. So I am, somehow, I have managed to have two different, completely different careers. One is as an executive working in digital transformation. My sweet spot is kind of agile transformation. And recently I've expanded that into innovation, leadership development, more coaching, et cetera. And then the other part is as a children's book author. So I also write books for nine to 12 year olds primarily, and then also a lot of short stories for teenagers. So a completely different kind of life that I'm living by day and night. Yeah, and what, how have you, um kind of gone through that journey and and done that? I think at the beginning of my career, I was really hyper aware of this starving artist kind of stereotype and this idea that if I wanted to study humanities or if I wanted to be an author full time, that was just unrealistic, Um, especially given, you know, the demographic I am as a Black woman um, from South Africa, it just wasn't the thing to do. And so immediately I decided I was going to go study accounting at university, which was a terrible idea because of course I would make the world's worst accountant. But nonetheless, I kind of had to go through that experience and and not succeed at doing that and have to kind of go, you know what, I'm gonna drop out of this and switch to a PPE, to politics, philosophy and economics. Um, And in making that switch, because I kind of conned my way into switching halfway through one degree and halfway into the other one. So I started off at the halfway mark and then had to go back and do the first year courses for politics and philosophy and whatever. And so I had a lot of free time. And in that time, um, I signed up for an internship with a um, feminist publishing house in Cape Town called Mujaji Books and started a career in publishing on the side that just sort of never ended, right? And it was because I suddenly had this this free time and kind of realized you could carve out time to have creative pursuits and you didn't have to live that starving artist stereotype. That's an amazing story. And as you were just, I didn't know that about you, about kind of starting off in one degree and then shifting across that. You made such a bold and brave decision, but at the same time, you use that to your advantage. I mean, it was really kind of an insane decision at the time, <laughs> to be honest, because I was I was on a scholarship. I was in one of those contractual things with like an accounting firm where you have to like kind of do all the things and you have to pass the boards and you go work for them for three years. So it was like a seven year journey that I was bypassing. I had to get bought out of my contract. And the basis of that decision was only because I went to a young woman in finance conference because it was a free ticket home and sometimes spent at a hotel. And I was like, cool, why not? Um, And at that conference, McKinsey was presenting their Kenya 2030 vision and the work that they're done with Kenya. And I thought, this is incredible. I can't believe a private company can go and do this amazing work for society. And at some point in the presentation, they said, it doesn't matter what what you study, you can come and work for us. And I went, 
oh my goodness, this is fantastic. I'm going to go work for McKinsey and went home and told my mom, I'm going to go work for McKinsey. I'm going to drop out of my degree. It's over now, right? And then after doing all of that, then Googled McKinsey and was suddenly like, oh my goodness, only geniuses work here. I can never work here. And immediately ruled myself out. I didn't even apply for years and years after that because I just went, you know what? This is too smart for me. I'm not, I'm never going to get in here. Don't even try. Only much later, once I found myself actually in technology and really struggling with, I think, some of the things we'll talk about later on in the podcast that come with working in technology, that I suddenly, out of sheer anger and frustration and resentment, went, I'm just going to apply to McKinsey and see what happens. Um, and then they didn't get back to me for a year because they lost my application. And that time I was like, oh, OK, I was right. I, I, clearly, I wasn't smart enough. Um, and then they got back to me and uh, I ended up working for McKinsey for five years. So. It all kind of worked out in the end, but at the time, it certainly did not feel like that. And I also learned that not all the people who work at McKinsey are geniuses, so all good. That's amazing. And as you were talking um, through that, that, I was thinking about that squiggly career almost of kind of going here, going there. And listen, you just kind of brought that up about the women in tech. And I really wanted to ask you about that because I read that you're on the board for um, Girl Code, as well as a mentor on coach for women in cable technology. How do you think we could empower more females in STEM? And I really want to look across the board here. So not just kids progressing in there, but women who are kind of maybe at that middle middle to senior management level and wanting to pivot into a career in tech. Yeah, so I think that women in any field, but especially in technology, what they require is sponsorship. It is not just the mentorship of other people who kind of know some things. It's not just coaching to kind of get them to challenge themselves. And it's not really an educational thing either, like on the job training, et cetera, because I don't think it's a skills deficit. I think the, the challenges that hold women back in technology um, are really ones of perception, um, ones of people believing that women have to do something over and above to prove that they're ready for more senior positions. Um, ideas that people get socialized with about women not being able to do STEM, right, which you get socialized with from a very young age. And all of that can only be rectified with people who are willing to take chances on women, right, people who are willing to give them opportunities to present at that meeting, to run that um, daily stand up, to have the, the, the main voice in the demo, whatever it might be. Um, and that has to come from leaders at every level. So you could be a, the most junior manager and still manage to, to sponsor people and give them the opportunity to do more things. But that sponsorship is going to make or break the career because without someone to take a chance on you, you absolutely never get any higher in that run. How can you turn yourself into a sponsor? You have to just choose um, to put your name on the line for someone else, right? So every time you are sending job job adverts to someone, every time you are having a conversation with your mentor and you mention another woman, um, every time you take a junior woman or a grad or an intern with you to a, a more senior meeting, right, or a meeting with your boss and you allow them to present the part, which most often they actually worked on, Every time you give credit to a woman when she has worked on something in the background and you're being celebrated for it, all of those small acts of sponsorship, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't always have to be, you know, this conference you present at or, you know, this, um, this new job that you've been given. It can be a range of small activities as long as you are putting your name and reputation behind someone and really backing them in a visible way. 
that's brilliant. I, I really, really warm to that. And it was a conversation that we we've have, we're having on the podcast through female empowerment. And actually, we were talking about just kind of supporting other people. And it doesn't have to be this big, huge. Look at this person; she's amazing. It can be just in a meeting, like you say. So that's fantastic. Wanted to kind of lead on and really ask you now around what do you see the main barriers are for women kind of pivoting into tech or, or taking onto a tech career? I think that there are barriers that women tend to face because they often have the bulk of domestic responsibilities and the bulk of family expectations. And so that creates difficulty in making a sudden pivot in your career when making that pivot to be a developer or a data scientist or whatever might result in a, in a temporary dip of your income, right? In order for a long-term increase, of course. But being able to take that hit is not something that a lot of people whether they're women or or not, have the ability to do unless they have kind of family backing or savings or any number of things. So I think that at any point, that kind of pivot, if you're going into something completely new, that's going to be challenging. I think the other thing, again, going back to sponsorship, is people who will give you a chance, even if you have no track record. This is why we end up, we spend so much time investing in women in university, going into grad programs, et cetera. There's an overinvestment um, at, at that age spectrum. And we tend to forget older women who are in their roles, experienced, have wealth of, of um, offering to give to the organization and make it really difficult for them to be able to move over because we pretty much say, you've done your bit, you cannot go do something else, right? So those for me are kind of the, the, big, the big barriers and challenges that they face. And there's always, of course, the reality that even if you can get more women to pivot, it's really difficult to make them stay because they don't end up having the right opportunities. They don't end up having the right support, the right autonomy, or feeling like there's real value in the work that they're providing and visibility for the work that they're providing, which I think is so important in which companies forget, right? Because they do these massive recruiting drives and then the women get there and it's an environment which is you know, toxic or you know, rejects them like a rejected organ kind of thing. So this is something which um, I'm really passionate about is this idea of retention over this idea of acquisition. Yes, by all means, you know, improve your pipelines, but for the woman who you already have, how do you keep them? Yeah. And, and I feel like you might know what question I'm about to ask you really is how do we keep those women in those positions? Creating opportunities is one. Um, not setting different standards for a woman than you set for everybody else is another one, because sometimes women are expected to overperform. Something which I once heard was, um, you know, um, men get promoted on potential, women get promoted on perfection. And so that understanding kind of needs to be eroded in order for women to start getting promoted on their potential, I believe. Um, and the other thing is removing microaggressions in the workplace, right? Getting to the point where women do not have to face questions about when are you having a baby or are you single or, you know, oh, you look like you're having hot flashes. It's that come, the time of the day or whatever. Like those kind of things, you know, as a PMS, these kind of daily microaggressions um, for, you know, cis women, trans women, women of color, all of these really become things that make you not want to be in the workplace. And we've seen a lot of data that's come in related to future ways of work, flexibility, hybrid working, that many women and people of color, and in particular women of color, 
really prefer not to go into the office and prefer to be working from home because that means that they get to skip a bunch of those microaggressions. So we do have to do something in the workplace, not just to increase visibility, diversity, representation, but really to increase equity and get people to take you know, a hard look at what they say is unconscious bias. But at a certain point, you start to go, this feels very conscious to me. Yeah. And I know people won't be able to see this, but as you were just talking about that there, I was kind of looking at the sky going, yes, because like most women that listen to this podcast, you know, the the biggest thing that I have is I hate it when people were like, oh, when you're getting married, when you're having a baby, well, it's none of your bloody business. (laughs) Well, you know, I actually, I found that I am so awkward now with those kind of questions. Like if someone asked me that, I'll straight up be like, I have endometriosis. Maybe I can't have children. So, you know, what are you going to do about it? Right. So like talk about my partner's ill and be like, yeah, we were trying to adopt, but he's ill now. So I can't have any children. So what do you want? Right. And then it makes people feel really uncomfortable. But I think they've really earned that awkwardness. And we kind of should put them in that awkward position because they're doing something which is making you feel really uncomfortable and getting into your personal life. So bring them in there to the whatever pain, hurt, whatever you're feeling and have them have the moment of, yeah, I've had six miscarriages. What are you going to say now? Right. Yeah. That's my attitude, which of course not other people have, but I do think these sort of things, we really have to make it as uncomfortable for those who are making us uncomfortable as we can to really t- have a learning moment. Right. Yeah. Do you know what? Loving that, loving that kind of almost you're giving that permission piece there, which I quite like, because actually now I'm thinking, do you know what? Next time someone says that to me, I'm going to give them my hard truths and then make them feel uncomfortable and then then come back at me. Yeah. (laughs) So thank you for that. Um, So look, listen, I want to ask you now around, you know, your career. You've had so many opportunities. I see you as someone really changing that face of leadership. I obviously have that kind of bias as well, because I obviously work at the same organization with you. I've been involved in some of the stuff that you've been doing. But I want to really ask you, tell me about your experience of how you have progressed into the direct role that you are in now. I often talk to people about there's two ways you can approach your career, right? There is one way, which is the scenic route. You sort of take a... Uh, a stroll through the woods, let's say, right? And as things come up, you're like, oh, that's very interesting. Let me go in that direction. Oh, that's a light in that direction. I can go there. Um, And that's one approach to do it. The other approach is to take a run straight through the middle, right? So whatever trees, whatever, you deviate slightly, but you keep running, right? And that's how you get to your single-minded, totally focused, very strategic to get your end goal. And even though my career looks like it's been quite wandering, I've actually chosen to take the straight run, right? Now, there is a cost to doing that because, of course, it is a harder journey and it is a faster journey and the learning curves are much bigger and the ups and downs are much bigger. But for me, it's worked out really well because I never wanted to be the sort of person who was waiting for things to happen to me, waiting for an opportunity, waiting for a good job, waiting for a better manager, because I just felt like you spend your whole life waiting with no guarantee that those things are happening. So I'd rather take my agency back and try to make things happen for myself until other people start helping me, basically. So I started off um, in publishing, as I talked about. Uh, I pivoted to work in technology, not because I love technology, just because there was a job, I needed a job, there we are. Um, discovered I actually loved technology and thought it was an incredible space to work in, but also encountered, again, a toxic environment to work in. The company that I worked for first was a um, SAP house that was sort of providing services to uh, big companies 
And I remember them saying, we think you're amazing. We think you're so great, um, but we can't promote you because older white men will not report to you. That's just, that's just the truth, it's straight up. Um, so if you give us 10 years, then maybe we can then make you a manager and give you teams and things, and we'll pay you more every year until then, it's because we just don't really know what to do with you right now, but we don't want to lose you, right? And I thought that was insanity, right? It was that anger that sparked me to apply for McKinsey and go work uh, running an ed tech NGO and all sorts of other things, because I just went, this is again another situation of people trying to take away my agency and trying to take my own ability to progress in my career, assuming that I should wait for them, right? In my time at McKinsey, I did a lot of work. Most of it was around transformation of some sort, no surprise given what I do today. Um, and that path wasn't easy either. It's a difficult environment to work in. I think it is one of the uh, best places in the world to work and I'm, I'm completely obsessed with McKinsey still. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, but it was definitely a really tough place and I would not recommend that for everybody because it will not be for everybody. Getting feedback on a two weekly basis, having to deal with, you know, never quite getting to the goal you need to, being pushed to be better, better, better. Also having doors closed for you in terms of practices or projects that you want or places you want to work. It's the same as kind of being in the job market in a weird way because you're always kind of pitching yourself for the next project. There's no kind of guarantee of getting it. But I managed to find a practice and a home within McKinsey in the digital team because that was the team that really saw my potential and wanted that to be the thing that they gave me opportunities on rather than my performance in other spaces and areas, right? And it was the team that really backed me, that really was able to have, um, to have my back when things did not go to plan and when I messed up and made mistakes because you're absolutely going to do that. And your sponsors have to be there when you are not performing as well, right? Equally to when you are performing. And it was through that network and that, that network of sponsorship that I ended up getting the opportunity to go uh, work uh, at Deutsche Bank in London, which is how I ended up in the UK. And it was an interesting one because it was 11 interviews that I had to go through to get that job. And you kind of go like, I get it, it's a director job, et cetera. But talking to other men later on in that environment, they were like, yeah, I had like two chats. Um, again, one of those things that really makes you go, hmm, interesting. <laughs> I discovered that, you know, being a director in technology was an exciting role to be in because finally I was really at the coal face and really having to deal with the, the recommendations that had come from the consultants, which I absolutely loved. I loved my colleagues. I thought it was a fantastic place uh, because there were so many opportunities. But the challenge I faced is that people did not have the same level of ambition that I had. And they didn't want to run straight ahead to the solutions. They wanted to take the wandering kind of path. And so that meant that I ended up being incredibly bored. You know, I, I have ADHD, um, which means that it's difficult for me to focus at the best of times. But it also means that I need to be doing a lot of things at the same time and have a lot of stimulation to really find meaning in my work and be able to really um, perform at my best. And so I went into my conversation with my current boss, Philip Roland at Virgin Media um, 02, and was very clear, like, I cannot be bored under any circumstances. It's a mental health challenge for me. So, you know, I know other people find it inconvenient, but I really need you to show up in a different way. I need to be autonomous. I need to have the freedom to do things. I need to be able to hire diverse teams. I need to be able to coach and sponsor young women in the organization. 
all of these kind of guidelines that I set or the, the conditions that I would take this job. And he said yes to all of them. And to his credit, he's actually been able to keep pretty much every one of the promises he made to me, which I think is also quite unique um, amongst a lot of bosses and managers. And the interesting thing that I felt as I was leaving that, that Deutsche Bank's organization is one of the managing directors was much more senior than me, um, sort of sat me down to talk about why I was leaving. And at the end of the conversation, he said, I didn't realize you had other options. So in his mind, because of my demographics, black, queer, woman, immigrant, whatever, um, he just thought you have to stay here. How could you possibly leave, right? Uh, and I think that's how a lot of organizations view women, right? As we can sort of do whatever because where else are you gonna go, right? This is a good job, it's good money, we don't harass you, so that should be good enough, right? Uh, and it wasn't for me. So I think all of these experiences were ways where I went, of course I could have stayed on a, on a track at McKinsey, I could have stayed at Deutsche Bank, I could have stayed at the other organizations I worked at, but it was always going like, I'm not running fast enough to the direction that I want to get to. I'm not getting to my goal quick enough for me and my own expectations. And so it was always pushing me to get through the forest at a much faster rate. When I listen to you talk, I have to say, I hear this incredible strong woman who's very self-aware and confident. And I kind of want to ask you the question, and if that's okay for me to ask you this question as well, slightly going off piece with the questions that I kind of sent over to you beforehand, cool. was have you always been this self-aware, confident woman? I mean, I started off talking about the fact that I didn't even apply to McKinsey for years and years because I felt like I wasn't going to get the job. So, you know, clearly not. Um, but I think that there were many things that have helped me uh, build that confidence. One of them was that I grew up in an abusive home. And so there was a certain amount of resilience that you need to survive those kind of um, situations and environments. Um, but on the other hand, my parents were both executives by the time I was a teenager. And there was something about the visibility of seeing your mom in a boardroom, right? Like there was nowhere else I could go. I kind of had to go with her because like, there's no childcare or whatever. So there I was sitting in the boardroom watching her as the only black woman, as the only woman on several executive boards. And that I didn't, I've always kind of gone like, oh, I don't know why people you know, care that I'm in these positions. Like what does the visibility matter? But I forget that I had the privilege of being able to see my mother in that particular scenario and showing up as a corporate woman and showing up with her identity right in a much more difficult situation post-apartheid South Africa so that I think also has given me a lot of confidence is sort of her attitude of whatever I'll figure it out right so even if I don't know if I have no experience in this thing I, I have no clue what to do whatever I'll figure it out and that I've kind of found has also really um, had me in good stead because really I've, I've kind of gone for every opportunity I'm pretty sure I'll work it out and I think the more I've worked, the more mediocre men I have encountered. And I think women, by the way, should have the right to be mediocre as well. I think by all means, this whole idea that you have to be excellent all the time and you know, women have to be incredible and strong and the best, da, da, da. like, no, women should be allowed to be mediocre. Disabled people should be mediocre. Queer people should be able to be mediocre, right? And still get opportunities to do things. But seeing so many men who honestly showed up at meetings and they weren't bad and they weren't good and they said stuff and nobody remembered it afterwards. 
that gave me a lot of confidence as well, because I went, why shouldn't I speak up in this meeting? These guys speak up all the time and they're not saying anything that's, you know, groundbreaking either. So if I say this thing, it's most likely that people will kind of forget in the next kind of 20 minutes what I said, but they will remember that I spoke. They will remember that I was the woman in the meeting or the, the youngest person in the meeting or whatever, and I had the confidence to speak up. And so maybe next time they'll ask me what I think. Right. And so it kind of slowly started. And I found that regardless of what level I am at, I still go to meetings with people who don't think that I should have the right to speak in that meeting or who, you know, want to talk over me or whatever. But I do show up and go, you know what, I have every much as right to speak in this meeting, even if what I'm saying is actually terrible and is never going to work. It doesn't matter. You'll forget about it. The world will carry on. So all of those things, I think, gave me confidence. Yeah. And thank you so much so far for being so open and honest on this podcast, because it's stories like yours that empower and enrich our listeners. So thank you. I am going to move slightly over now and ask you about you being an author. And you write books for nine to 18 year olds. Yeah. Uh, tell me about those inspirations behind the stories that you write. I have always been inspired by fantasy and sci-fi. Those are the kind of books which I have read the most of in recent years anyway, and enjoyed the most of. Um, and I was always like, I watched a hell of a lot of TV as a child, right? I taught myself to speak English when I was three or something from watching American TV. Um, so I was always kind of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and like Goosebumps episodes on TV and all of this stuff was stuff which I was obsessed with, right? And even as an adult, I love like Supernatural, I love Black Mirror. Um, and I got quite a lot of inspiration from that, right? Because that was getting yourself into this fantastical, mythical future, whatever setting, and really losing and dropping everything off from reality, right? Which as someone with ADHD, it's quite nice to be able to block out all the thoughts and be able to just focus on this world. And so I loved that. Um, I also was really inspired by the idea of African mythology and African myth, because so many African children, I talk about this all the time, they know what vampires are, they know what werewolves are, but they don't know about Tokolosh, they don't know about Mamiwata, or any of the richness of African mythology, monsters, horror, fantasy, right? Um, and so I, I really was inspired by the idea of being able to bring that to them, right? Um, and then I think the last thing was also because I spent so much time watching American TV and British TV and reading books from those uh, places and playing video games from those places, etc. There were no brown children in any of those things, right? And a lot of the settings made no sense to me, actually. If I'm reading this book and they're talking about like having afternoon tea and I'd be like, or having tea right in the evening. And I'd be like, why are you having tea? That's so weird. Like you just have tea every day. Like are you guys obsessed with tea? And as it turns out, you really are obsessed with tea, but that was not the context, right? Um, or like double decker buses or all sorts of things, which is like snow in December is not a thing that happens in South Africa. It's summertime, right? It's the peak of summertime. It's all about brides and you know, barbecues, whatever, right? So for me, there was also something about being able to give black and brown children a way to see themselves in Buffy or Supernatural or Goosebumps or whatever, right? Like it was a place where they could also be in something that was a fantasy that had nothing to do with poverty or war or animals or whatever, that was just pure entertainment, 
And that, those were the things that inspired me. I just, I, I was leaning into the screen, listening to you talk about that there. And I'm going to kind of ask you a bit of a cheeky question. What's your favorite book that you have written and published? My favorite book that I've written? Yeah. Um, uh, probably my first book, um, Powers of the Knife. Um, it was the first book in my Shadow Chasers series. And it was a really interesting situation because I kind of, through my publishing contacts or whatever, kind of started writing short stories for this uh, organization who had a publishing house attached to them and kind of was like, okay, cool. Uh, and they had paired me up with another writer and gone, yeah, you know, we'd love for the two of you to write this book together. And uh, we tried and it was terrible. And so, you know, I was really cheeky because he was um, a, a man who seemed to think he knew everything about it. And I just sent my proposal for what I would do if I was just writing the book to the publisher. And they came back and said, actually, that's way better. Like, why don't you just write the book? Um, which was fantastic. And I got to do that. And I, I don't think you can ever really get over the feeling of seeing your name in print seeing something you created like actually in print I don't read a lot of print books anymore because I the I probably read about two books a week so it's just not practical to keep that many books around the house so I listen to a lot of audio books and I read a lot kind of um on my phone but there is something definitely very special about that first time so my first book is probably my favorite what a fantastic story to, to kind of follow up with that question there. So I'm going to kind of wrap up the podcast by asking you a couple of kind of fire questions around, I guess I'll just dive straight in and ask you these questions. What has been your proudest moment? Um, during uh, the Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone, um, I was deployed as part of a McKinsey team that was there to support the country in its recovery. And that was one of the worst and best six months of my life. Um, it was an incredibly difficult situation working seven days a week with a, a pandemic to deal with, <laughs> which uh, as we all know now is actually quite tough. Um, to deal with the isolation and the restrictions, et cetera, of that sort of environment. But I was involved in setting up an alternative education system for pregnant schoolgirls who were unable to go to school. I was involved in setting a curriculum that was standardized and that all teachers were trained on for the first time in 20 years. I was involved in piloting a school feeding program. I mean, the list kind of goes on and all the things that I, I did there. And that was absolutely my proudest moment is leaving Sierra Leone after six months better than it had been when I arrived. Wow. What's, what's been your most, um, your most challenging moment so far? Um, that's a good one. I think... Uh, I think I'm in my most challenging moment right now. <laughs> um, I just came off the back of um, co-leading the pre-merger integration between Virgin Media and O2 from the Virgin Media side. It was a massive deal to make an incredible organization um, that I'm very proud to be associated with. And I thought that leading that PMI effort with like 2,000 people and like over 100 work streams and you know, 31 billion pound um, merger value, I thought that was going to be tough. It's nothing compared to starting a new company, right? And suddenly being responsible for coming up with what's the new innovation strategy? What are you doing for digitization? How are you gonna do process? Just all of it, all at once. 
um, I think we're so used to having incremental change and incremental improvement, right? Something exists and you're trying to make it better. We're now in the situation where nothing exists and we have a blank sheet and we can make it whatever we want. And that is uh, amazing, but also really hard. So this is certainly uh, one of my most challenging moments. But if you want me to go further back in my career and um, challenging bad, not challenging good, I once served a um, major hospital, a major public hospital, and I worked in the surgery operating theater. I was incredibly passionate about the work that I was doing because I felt like people will genuinely live or die based on the decisions that I choose to make about the things that I was doing on that project, um, which actually really was the case. And so I was like on the edge of like being so completely stressed out that there were literally people on gurneys kind of dying because I couldn't do my job. Uh, and I, I drove myself almost to madness. The work that I was hired to do from that project, I did not do. Instead, I decided I was gonna fix all these other projects and all these other problems because I felt those were more important for society, completely neglecting what my actual job was. Um, not only did I get into major trouble with um, my manager, the partners, the APs, whatever, because they were sort of like, but you didn't do anything that we needed you to do. And then I had to, squish it into the last kind of two weeks of an eight-week project but also the client didn't appreciate it at all so afterwards they were sort of like couldn't you have just done like extreme makeover or just like cleaned or something <laughs> that would have been way better than all this other stuff you tried to do and it was an important lesson in one you will never go as far alone as you can together um Two, you are not the smartest person in every room. So, you know, listen to other people and what they're telling you. Um, and, and three, you should never really care about the project or the problem more than you care about the people involved in it than the client in the consulting setting, but, you know, your colleagues in, when you're actually working on things. Because that was the truth. I was more concerned about linen availability, procurement challenges, stock outages. I didn't really care about the fact that I was letting down my team or the fact that I was letting down the client by not listening to them and deciding that I knew what was best. So definitely a lot of humility that I learned from that situation and lessons which have um, I've never forgotten. And that leads me quite nicely onto my last question for you. And it is, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would tell her to back herself. Because I think that there were many situations where she made choices later than she could have made those choices. She could have been much more decisive. She could have done it much faster, but she didn't because there was risk associated with it because people would be disappointed because people would be shocked. Um, and when she did it, people were all of those things, but as it turned out, it didn't really matter, right? Because she was happier. And so I would tell her absolutely to back herself to have confidence in the fact that she can overcome whatever is going to come ahead, um, to have confidence in the fact that difficult times pass, right? And to not be afraid to get help in those difficult times because that isn't a sign of weakness, that is a sign of strength. It's a strategic advantage to be the sort of person who can ask for help completely without strings, et cetera, and who can offer the same, right? Um, so all of those things I would tell her, plus, you can be weird if you want to be weird. That's totally fine. You'll figure out what that's about later on. Um, and you should also not believe the myth that you can only be one thing, one type of woman, one type of leader. You can be whatever type you want to be. 
thank you for such an empowering and enriching podcast today. And thank you for being a guest on Speak Female. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to the Speak Female podcast. I've been your host, Lucy Grimwade. Check out the show notes where you will find contact details for the panellists that have been on this episode today. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share across your networks. The more people we can reach, the better. And I will leave you with this. Be curious, be kind, and be the change you want to see in the world. Speak female soon.